0: Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whosoever you are that judges. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge do the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things. And do you think thou this, O man, that judges them that do such things, and you do the same that you shall escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? But after the hardness and impenitent heart, you store up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Father, we have here, just as we have the last several weeks, a sobering passage of scripture, a convicting one, and so we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight as we study it together. We thank you that you have promised that you would give us the spirit of truth who would guide us into all truth and teach us all things, and so we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open our hearts to receive from you today a a word that is challenging and convicting. Transform us by the renewing of our minds, Lord, that we would be able to exalt and glorify you in the world in which we live. This, this world desperately needs to see your love and your grace, through the good news of your gospel. And so, God, work it into us that we represent you well wherever we would go, whether it is in our neighborhood or out on the, the baseball field or at work or school, wherever you would carry us, even to the uttermost parts, Lord, we want to shine forth your glory. So stir our hearts. We asked this in Jesus' name, and all God's people agreed, saying, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Paul's aim in the open of this letter, the letter to the church at Rome, is to exalt the glories of the gospel of God. And he, as we saw last week in Romans chapter 1, specifically at verse 15, he was ready and willing to preach that gospel there in the city of Rome. Just as he had already done in many other places to this point in his ministry, Paul had already been to the regions of Galatia and Macedonia and Greece, Asia Minor. And so wherever Paul went... He went there not as a traveling businessman plying his trade as a tent maker. He went there not to see the sights of the, the world in that day, the, the great temples of Corinth or Ephesus. His whole aim in going to these places was to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, as we saw in verse 16, A couple of weeks ago that he was not ashamed of the gospel because he knew that it alone is the very power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. The gospel is the only way unto salvation. The apostle Peter also preached this in Acts chapter 4 at the very early stages of the growth of the church. We read in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, he's standing before the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and he says in verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God's son, God come down incarnate here among us to lay down his life for our sins, that good news is to be declared, and it's the only way. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 14 of himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And as we see that message proclaimed in the Gospels and in the Epistles and in throughout the Scriptures, we recognize that it is good news. That's what the word gospel means, the Greek word euangelion. It's good news testimony going forth it's the same word that is used in the greek translation of the old testament that was used in describing the messengers who carried word to the captive jewish people when they had been prisoners of war in the land of babylon for 70 years and then this group of people started to go throughout the the regions where they were being held as slaves as prisoners of war and telling them you can go free you're set free it was good news glad tidings of good things But the reality is, is that the good news of the gospel, for it to become exceedingly glorious or for it to be tremendously good, it must be presented upon the black backdrop of the lostness of humanity. You see, the good news only becomes clear as being good news when we recognize just how bad the bad news is. And that's what we've been looking at in these chapters here before us in the book of Romans. So Paul quotes, as we saw last week in Romans chapter 3, which is kind of the conclusion of this opening section. He quotes in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And he says this, there is none righteous. Romans 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There's no one that seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is no one that does good. No, not one. So that's the conclusion of this section. That's where Paul is taking us to this conclusion that there's nobody who does good. There's no one who understands. There's no one that seeks after God. And this is the evaluation of God over humanity. As God looks at humanity, which he has created, which is fallen because of sin, he says there is no one there that does good. This is the indictment upon humanity from God, the judge. He's the judge of all things. And so he indicts humanity as being completely out of the way. And we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the the summation of this whole thing, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's where Paul is steering this whole discourse is to that concluding remark. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's God's appraisal. But as we considered last week, we, human beings, God's creation that are fallen, we don't really believe that to be true. We have a hard time with the idea that there is nothing good in us at all. And so... We just have a hard time buying that. And so we start to think when we, we read passages like that or we hear it stated in those concise words that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God that there's no one who does good. We start to think things like, well, there, there has to be some good in us. We can't possibly be 100% completely unprofitable. There's, there's got to be something there that's you know, intrinsic to us that's of value. And yet the scriptures declare God's evaluation of us is that there is none righteous, Not a single one. And our fallen nature has an incredibly hard time accepting the reality of our fallenness. We just don't like to admit that we are as lost as we truly are. Now, there's a good number, a fair amount of guys here. And guys never get lost, right? (laughs) I mean, thank God for Siri and the Maps program that's been screwed up a little bit on the iPhone. But because of that, I'm never, ever, ever lost. But even before that... There's, you know, you're driving with your wife and I think we're lost. No, we're never lost. Always know which direction north, south, east, and west is. I I can be dropped anywhere I find my way out, which is not true, but we like to think that, right? Well, the same is true with our spiritual condition. We don't like to admit or confess our lostness. We have a hard time grappling with our fallenness. Not only that, we have an amazing propensity for self-justification. So anytime we encounter... In our lives, a situation where our God-given conscience, and we talked quite a bit last week about the conscience that God has hardwired into us, a recognition of a moral law. He's given us a moral compass. And so anytime when we're walking through this life where we encounter a situation where our God-given conscience conflicts with our sinfully inclined thoughts or actions, we attempt to try and adjust things so that we no longer feel the pain of that conscience. We try to adjust so that that cognitive dissonance goes away. Cognitive dissonance is where you have the values that God has imprinted upon your heart by his moral law in our conscience, where that conflicts with what you're doing or thinking or saying in that moment. And when you have that conflict, there's a cognitive dissonance. And when we encounter that in our fallen state, our reaction is to try and adjust things. So we do away with the conscience that we're not convicted by it any longer. And so I mentioned last week how that when you do that repeatedly, when you no longer listen to your conscience and kind of go the other way, and you continue walking in your actions that conflict with your conscience, when you do that repeatedly, you can sear or callous your conscience to the point where you no longer have the sensitivity to the moral law that God has imprinted upon you in your heart. Paul speaks about it in this way in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, just a few books to the right of Romans. He says in verse 17, Ephesians 4, 17 This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as unbelievers or Gentiles in the futility and the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. And then he says this in verse 19. Who, speaking about these unbelievers, being past feeling, have given themselves over to Sinful actions, lasciviousness, to work uncleanness with greediness. So he says in their state, their fallen state, they've moved beyond feeling. They no longer feel the effects. They no longer have the sensitivity to the God-given conscience because they've calloused it. And Paul says it like this in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. They speak lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared as with a hot iron. So living here in 21st century Western culture, the Western ethos in this modern day is that man is essentially and inherently good. That's the mindset. That's kind of the presupposition that we begin with, that human beings are born essentially or inherently good. And that they become bad or do bad things, not because they are bad themselves, but because they encounter difficult situations, they encounter harsh things around them in their environment, and so that causes them to act bad. But that's not what the Scriptures reveal. The Scriptures are driving home this point. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we all have transgressed God's glorious character through our actions. And that these things come about not because of outward influences upon us. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man from within, from the heart. That's where these things come from, as we'll see in just a moment in Mark chapter 7. And so in these introductory chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, Paul is zeroing in on three cross-sections of humanity. Three different groups that we have Inhumanity. we saw last week in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 that he addresses those that would be called the hedonists, the hedonist, the one who lives for pleasure, the one who lives, it looks like according to no law, no rule, no governance. They just do whatever they want. That's the whole governance of their life. They live for pleasure. They find meaning in whatever makes them feel good. It's humanistic philosophy. And and our culture today, just as it was 2,000 years ago in Rome, is is rife with this. This is just all around us in our culture today. A hedonistic mindset. Now, as we move into chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 16, we're going to see that Paul moves from the, the hedonist, and now he speaks to the moralist. The moralist. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And then next week, when we continue on with our study, we're going to look at the religionist. So the hedonist, the moralist, and the religionist. The self-righteous is the third group. And so as you look around humanity today, you can find each one of these cross-sections. Each one of these categories. And Romans, as we saw last week in chapter 1, it reveals the desperate condition of humanity. And the desperate condition of humanity is this, because we see that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that no one is righteous, no, not one. In Romans chapter 3, we find in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is ready to be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So the the plight of humanity, the desperate um, condition of humanity, is that God's wrath is about to come forth. It's about to come onto the scene against all ungodliness and against all unrighteousness. Because humanity has wholesale rejected God's glory. I said, we, we don't want any part of that. And they have exchanged it for pitiful and pathetic substitutes in idolatry. And that's what Romans chapter 1 zeros in on. That when humanity, fallen from God, departed from God, when they refuse to glorify God, to worship Him, to be thankful to Him, because God has Imprinted upon us or programmed us to worship we 're going to worship something, and so if we refuse to worship god we 're just not going to do that. we will not glorify Him, we will not be thankful romans one twenty one then the default, what you will always revert to will be worship of idols, because every single human being is created by God as an instrument of worship. The, the reason he made us is to glorify himself. The chief end of man is the glory of God. That means that we are ourselves instruments of worship. And he has hardwired us. He has programmed us to do that, to worship him. And so when we make a decision or a choice that we're not going to worship him, we're not going to reverence him and glorify him, then we're going to worship something. We're going to turn towards idolatry. And idolatry will always reduce to immorality. That's what Romans chapter 1 reveals. When a person says, I will not worship God or glorify him as God, their ultimate end is to be a worshiper of something, of idols, of things that have been created. And then God, as we saw three times in chapter 1, it says, God gave them over. He gave them over to this. And the idea about God giving them over is that when man says, I refuse to glorify you as God, God says, okay, I'm not going to intervene. And so because you're created to worship, you're going to worship something. I'm not going to intervene in that because God's, he's not going to force himself upon us, nor is he going to force us to worship him. So he says, I will not intervene. So in not intervening, he is giving us up to spoil basically. And so the result will always be immorality. And so we saw that Romans chapter one ends with a a glorious list, if you will, of immoral behaviors. A great list of very bad things. Things like what? Homosexuality, unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolence, pride, arrogance, arrogant boasting. All these things are listed there at the end of Romans chapter 1. These actions the Bible deems as sinful sinful they are unrighteous and the reason they're unrighteous is because they do not accord with or they do not uh, connect with gel with the righteous character of god so so god is the standard of what is right and pure and good and true and so when you disconnect from that and you do things that are against his character then you're doing things that are unrighteous and false and sinful, and ungodly. Anything that is incongruent with the character of God is ungodly. Therefore, it is classified by the Bible as sin. And so the conclusion is given to us there in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. What happens to those who practice such things? Look with me again, Romans one thirty-two, and let's see. This is the conclusion for the hedonist. Romans one thirty two, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit, or can also be translated practice, commit such things are worthy of what? Death. death. Why? Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. 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 So those who practice such things are worthy of death. And this is supported or substantiated further in other passages of Scripture. In fact, turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. You're in 1 Corinthians. Turn to the right, just a few books. You'll see 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians 5. Here in Galatians, Paul is contrasting what he calls the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. He says this in Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh, this is just our our normal default nature, the works of the flesh are clearly seen, they're manifest, and these are them. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such the like. Of the which... I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So there are some things listed there that are the same as what is listed in Romans chapter 1, but. He amplifies it a little bit here. I mean, we could go on and on and on, building a list of sinful actions, of behaviors that are against the righteous character of God. But the concluding remark is this. Those who practice such things, Romans one thirty two will be put to death. Those who practice such things, Galatians 5.19, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we see that these things are connected. To die in the way that God speaks of it in Romans is to not inherit eternal life with God Forever. And from there we turn to First Corinthians. so just go back to the left towards Romans, to First Corinthians, chapter six. 1 Corinthians chapter six. Verse nine. Paul says there to the church at Corinth, "Do you not know that the unrighteous?" shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, yes, we know that because we just saw it in Galatians 5.19. But what does he say? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So again, the list is similar in some ways to Romans 1 and 2. Galatians 5, maybe a few things are different, but the, the conclusion is this. Those who perpetually, continually practice and commit such things, they will die. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the intriguing thing is, is that we, human beings, in our fallen nature, actually like lists like that. You say, why? We like lists like Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 5, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The reason we like lists like that, especially people like us who are sitting in a church, is because when we read a list like that, it's very likely that you found nothing in that list that you say, I'm doing right now. (laughs) You see, when we read a list like that, We who are moralists, we're moralists, we live by a certain moral ethic. We look at a list like that and we say, well, I don't do that. I don't murder and commit adultery and steal and I don't do any of those things. So we look at a list like that and you know what a list like that does for us? It puffs us up. We go, I'm, I'm not so bad. Those people are bad, but I'm pretty good. And so when we read a list like this, the moralist will look at this and and we're incredibly quick to identify sin in others. But we have something of a a diminished capacity in seeing it in ourselves and, and we justify ourselves. And so we read a verse like Romans and chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 5 and verses in 1 in Corinthians chapter 6 and we see stuff like this and we begin to justify our sinful nature. And, and what we do when we see a verse or a passage like this, even if it does convict us, if there's a certain point of it that does convict us, maybe there's something that we struggled with in the past or maybe we have a hard time with even now, when we're convicted, what our our kind of self-exalting morality does is it covers over that that gritty piece of conviction with like a pearly white self-righteousness. And so when we read passages like this, we just kind of mumble or, or kind of move over parts that we don't like. Or we just don't quote those ones. Right? And so we find ourselves thinking, what a lost and gross world we live in. It is so bad out there. There are some really, really vile people out there. Don't they know that the judgment of God is going to come upon them? Oh, it's just going to be horrific. The wrath of God is going to be revealed from heaven. And so moralists, people sitting in churches all over this country at this very moment, we live by a certain moral ethic. And so we look at lists like this and it probably doesn't describe us. So moralists love lists. In fact, moralists would love more lists. In fact, list is part of moralist, And so we just love lists. And, and we look at stuff like this, and it, it kind of makes us feel like, well, we're just not so bad. They make us feel safe and secure from God's judgment. And so Paul now shifts from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 2. He, he, he shifts from speaking to the hedonist who their sin is clear. It's evident. The work of the flesh is evident. It's clearly seen. Everybody can look out at the world today and say, man, this world is full of sin. You see it in the news. You see it on TV. People entertain themselves. I mean, we look all around us. We are filled with sin as a people. But then we look inside a little room like this. We say, but this this is a safe place. Everything's good here. We're okay. No judgment. No wrath. We're fine. And so Paul shifts gears, and now he begins to speak to the moralist. Why? Because he's driving home this conclusion. Look at Romans 3 again. I already, already referenced chapter 3, verses 10 and on. There is none righteous, no, not one, none that seek after God. Nobody does good. Their mouths are like an open tomb. They spear forth, spew forth bitterness and death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Recognize that Paul's point in these first three chapters is to drive home this point. Romans 3.19. Look at it with me if you would. And about the middle of the verse, we see this, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. This is Paul's aim here. He's saying there's three groups of people in the world. There's the hedonist, do what you will, shall be the whole of law, do whatever you want. There's the moralist who says, listen, I'm pretty good. I'm better than those people. I don't do, I don't Murder and committed adultery. I'm better than all those wicked people. They deserve judgment. And and then there's the religionist, the hyper self-righteous that has a codified set of laws given to them in Holy Scripture, Holy Writ. And they look at this and they say, look, we're the special people because we have the law. We descended from Abraham. So everything's good for us. So those three groups of people, the hedonist, the moralist, and the religionist. And Paul's aim is to stop all of their mouths and make them all guilty before God. Why? Why? Because the glory of the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins, that he makes a way of salvation for sinners... Through his power, through the gospel, his justifying work that he deals with our past sin, the, the punishment for our sin, for that to be exceedingly glorious, it has to have the backdrop of we are all guilty. So Paul doesn't even begin to talk about justification and sanctification, all the aspects of the gospel, glorification, doesn't even begin to talk about that in Romans, until Romans chapter 4. Because in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, he's building the case that everyone is guilty before God. That our mouths would be stopped. And so he focuses now on the moralist. Chapter 2, verse 1. Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whosoever you are that judges. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge, do the same thing things. Now, Paul was an expert at logic. And he was, although we may not recognize it, he's a lawyer. His entire upbringing to be a Pharisee among the Jewish people, he understood and knew the law. He was a doctor of the law. And as such, he has this impeccable, awesome logic. He just gave this incredible list of bad things that people shouldn't do fornication and adultery and all these things that are spoken of their drunkenness and, and fightings and backbitings and envy and malice. And then right on the heels of that, he says they're all going to be judged. And he knows that there's going to be some people that would read this and say, they deserve judgment. They should all be damned to hell condemn them. And so he says, okay, you who judge another, I have a word for you. So you who look at others and say, they deserve to be damned to hell. Paul says, okay, let's, let's talk to you for a moment and see what God's word has to say to you. And he says, he begins this in such an interesting way because he says, you are inexcusable. Now look back at Romans chapter one, verse 20 again real quick. And remember, Paul was addressing in Romans one, those that refused to worship God and turned to idols and became hedonistic in their practices. And he says this, listen, you're without excuse. Why? The invisible things of God from creation are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead so that you are without excuse excuse. If you refuse to worship God and you worship idols, you're in an indefensible position because your conscience and creation says there's a God and you should worship him. And so you're in an indefensible position. When you stand before God, you will have no excuse. And now Paul uses the exact same Greek word as he shifts focus from the hedonist to the moralist. And he says there in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, You are inexcusable, O oh man. Who is inexcusable? Well, the one who judges. The one who casts condemnation. Upon another one. Now, it's important for us to recognize what is meant by this idea of judging someone because we're constantly being told, hey, Jesus said don't judge people, right? The idea expressed in this word, Greek word krino, which is speaking above judgment here, is to condemn someone to hell. You're saying because of what you've done, because of the way you live, you are damned to hell. And so Paul says... Be careful, you who judge, because you also are in an indefensible position. Why? He gives us three reasons in verse 1 why they're in an indefensible position. Number one, their judgment of another proves the reality of a judicial morality. What is that? When you judge someone, when you look at someone and say what they are doing is wrong, you are proving the existence of... Of a moral law. You are proving. That there is one. Who has given a standard. Of right and wrong. And so Paul says there. You are without excuse. When you judge. Because when you judge another. You're guilty of the same. So. The indefensible position is that. When you judge someone. You're proving. That God is. And that he has said, this is right and this is wrong. You see, if there is no God, then there is no moral lawgiver. And if there is no moral lawgiver, then there is no moral law. And if there is no moral law, then you can never say to someone, you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't do that. Because there's no such thing as a right and wrong. Everything is, you know, relative if there is no God. But when we stand in judgment of another, we're proving that there is a standard of right and wrong. Secondly, their judgment, the judgment of a, you know, self-righteous individual of others, it brings self-condemnation. Their judgment brings self-condemnation. Where do we see that? For when you judge another, you condemn yourself. How so? Well, when you begin to say, as you look at the sinful conditions of the world and you say, well, I don't practice all those wicked things. I don't murder people. I don't commit adultery. I'm not involved in fornication. All those people are worthy of death, but I'm good. When you do those things, you highlight the reality that actually you're involved in the same sort of sin. How so? Well, the Apostle James tells us in the book of James, James chapter 2, verse 10, that if you transgress God's law in one point, you're guilty of transgressing everything. So if the law of God says thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not commit adultery, and you say, Well, I've never killed anyone and committed adultery, but the law also says thou shalt not bear false witness. So if you've lied, even if it was an itty bitty 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 little white lie, just a little, you know, just a fib, if anything, if you've lied at any point, then you're guilty of the same transgression of the law as the one who committed adultery. That's heavy. I mean, bear the weight of that for a second. You see, a lot of times when you interact with someone who does not know God, and you ask them some questions like, well, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? They say, well, yeah, I think so. Well, why? Because I'm a pretty good person. Well, how do you figure a good person? Well, I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anyone. I think it's interesting that many, many times when I've interacted with people over that, it seems like those are the two sins that people say. Never killed anybody. I'm really glad to hear that. Never committed adultery. Well, that's wonderful. Interesting that Jesus addresses those specific sins in his discourse in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. And look at verse 21. Matthew five twenty-one. Jesus is speaking. He says, You have heard that it has been said of them of old time, You shall not kill. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, Now, note this. When it says, But I say unto you, This is a, Thus saith the Lord. This is God speaking. I say unto you, Whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Anyone ever been angry with someone without cause? Anyone here ever been malicious towards someone? You say, well, there's no way I'd ever murder them. I'm angry at them. I I hate them, but I'd never do anything to them. But boy, I sure would be happy if they got hit by a bus. I'd never physically do anything to them, but boo, oh, it'd be great if just like an asteroid would fall from the sky. You know. That's malice, that's murder. Ouch, that's heavy. Well, let's keep going. Look at verse 27, same passage. You have heard that it has been said of them of old time: you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, input, thus saith the Lord. If you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. He goes on to say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. They had an external righteousness. They looked really good on the outside. They were moralists. They were religionists. But he says, your righteousness needs to go down into your heart because God's dealing with the heart here and not just the external actions. You see... All sinful behavior is the overflow of a sinful heart. It's just the manifestation of what's already there in the heart. This is proven by Jesus's words in Mark chapter seven, verse twenty, when he says, "There, that which comes out of a man is that which defiles him; not that which goes into him. For out of a man, out of his heart, comes forth evil thoughts, adultery, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All of these evils come from within." So when Paul says, when you judge another, you judge yourself because you do the same things, although it may not be manifested, although it may not be clearly evident in your life that you're doing the things that the hedonist is doing, you're still internally doing them because your sin is of the heart. Lastly, we see here in Romans chapter two, verse one, the judgment that moralists cast on other people exposes their own error. Romans 2, verse 1. Wherefore, I'm sorry, wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge do the same things. Our judgment of others only exposes our internal sin. We may not externally practice it, but it's still resident in our heart. And so... When the moralist sits back and says, gosh, look at that terrible list of 23 very sinful things in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 32. They're so bad they should go to hell. They should be condemned. Then he says, well, wait a minute. You're guilty of the same things. Even though you're not practicing it, you're not doing it, it's still there in your heart. Verse 2, Romans chapter 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that commit such things humanity is unfit to judge other human beings as it relates to condemning them to eternal punishment, condemning them to hell because of our own inherent sinfulness. But God is the right and true judge. Well, how can we be sure that God is the right and true judge? How can we be sure that he judges in the right manner? Well, we can be sure, number one, because of the the, character of God. He is just. He is righteous. He is truth. In Genesis chapter 19, God judged a couple of cities, actually five cities. Two of the chief cities were cities named Sodom and Gomorrah. And before he poured out judgment and wrath and vengeance upon the cities. Of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities of the south, he went and met with one whom he had called out, a guy by the name of Abraham. And God clues Abraham into what he's going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham realizes that, well, my nephew Lot, he lives down in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not good. And so Abraham intercedes. He talks with God on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, God, suppose there are 50 righteous people who live in Sodom. Would you spare the cities for 50 righteous people? And God says, I will. Abraham thinks for a moment, wait a minute, there's probably not 50 righteous people in Sodom. God, suppose there's 45 righteous. Would you spare the city for 45? Yes. Okay. I hope I'm not stepping on some really crazy area here. What if there's only 30? Yes, I'll spare the city for 30. Down to 20. At one point, Abraham says this, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Right. Awesome question. He was questioning the righteousness of God and pouring out judgment upon humanity. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And we recognize that that is true. If there is one who will judge every human being, that person best be righteous in their judgment. Now, sitting here in the United States of America, November. 2012. We sit, although we recognize there are problems with it, and there are errors sometimes within it. We sit in a nation that has one of the greatest judicial systems around. But we recognize that there are sometimes when people who are guilty are let go, and then when there are people who are innocent and they are judged. But we have a system, great judicial system in many ways. And yes, there's problems, but we have a system where a jury. If your peers, 12 individuals, hear the testimony, see the evidence, and make a decision. And, and we recognize that even with that, there are times where there are failures. And so when we think of judgment, there's going to be a judge who's going to cast judgment upon all humanity. We filter it through our human understanding of a judicial righteousness. And so we want to know, is God going to be righteous if he's the arbitrary judge, will he be righteous? Let me read to you about the Messiah, Jesus, in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 4, this speaks about Jesus and the way he rules his kingdom. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. That just means that Jesus is going to come forth from the line of Jesse, King David and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, upon Jesus, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the spirit shall make him quick of understanding and the fear of the Lord. And notice this, verse three, he, Jesus, shall judge not after the sight of the eyes, nor of the hearing of the ears, but, his, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equality the meek of the earth. What's this tell us? God does not determine a person's, whether or not they're worthy of judgment based on testimony and evidence. He doesn't judge based on the seeing of the eyes or the hearing of the ears. There's never a time with God where he has a reasonable doubt in his judgment. Because he's not judging according to the seeing of the eyes, the hearing of the ears. There's never a, well, the glove doesn't fit, so you have to acquit moment with God. It's never there. Why? Because the scriptures reveal that God judges. Jeremiah 17, verse 10, he judges the heart of man. He sees what we cannot see. He judges the heart. First Chronicles 28 verse 9 says the same thing. The Lord who searches the hearts understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. Now, how is that for you today? God knows your thoughts. Every one of them. Every time you've had a lustful thought, a vengeful thought, every time you've had a covetous thought, God knows that. What no one else may be able to see as you sit in judgment and say, look at that adulterer. They should be put to death. As you cast judgment upon another, you condemn yourself because you're guilty of the same. And there's coming a day where we're going to stand before God for judgment. Look at verse 3, Romans chapter 2. And thinkest thou this, O man that judges... You judge those that do such things. What such things? Those things that were listed at the end of Romans chapter 1. Do you think when you pass judgment upon those who do such things that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Just because you're not doing those things, even though they're resident in your heart? Or, verse 4, Do you despise thou the riches of the goodness and forbearance of God, his long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? Do we presume upon the riches of God's grace? You see, the moralist often sits in a place of self-righteous judgment upon the hedonist because of the misrepresentation of the grace of God. How so? The moralist looks out into the world and they see the sinfulness of the world. They see the, the behavior of the world that is against rightness. And they see the bad things that happen in the world. And they say, that's because they're doing things that are against rightness. And then they look at themselves and say, see, clearly I'm doing okay because God hasn't judged me yet. The very real problem is in that we can misinterpret or vainly imagine that God's patience with us, that his long suffering with us, that his rich kindness towards us is an indication of God's approval of us. It's not. The long-suffering patience of God is an indication of his grace, and it is for a purpose. What purpose? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. You see, the purpose of God's common grace, of his forbearance, and not pouring out his wrath upon us yet, The purpose of it is to make a way for repentance. Why? Well, Peter goes on to say the very next verse, 2 Peter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall burn with a fervent heat, and the earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. God is long-suffering towards us, desiring that we would repent. Verse 5, Romans chapter 2, But... After the hardness and impenitence of your heart, or you're you're not willing to repent, you are storing up for yourself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. You see, the moralists, although they do not do the sinful deeds of the hedonists, they are still worthy of the same judgment because the in the face of God's good, rich mercy and grace, they have stubbornly refused to repent. And part of the reason that they refuse to repent is that because of their their own established moral reality, they think they don't need to. Those bad people outside need to repent. But I'm good. I don't need to repent. I'm a pretty good person. And I'm better than that guy. And you know what the reality is? There's 7 billion people upon the face of the earth today. You can always find someone worse than you. Even if you have to go all the way back to the 40s and say, well, I'm better than Hitler. (laughs) But you see, Hitler's not the standard of righteousness. God is. So his perfect standard is the standard of righteousness. And so because of the hardness and their failure to repent, they are storing up for themselves wrath. The same wrath that will be poured out upon the hedonist will be poured out upon the moralist because God will render to every man According to his deeds the wages of sin is death says Romans 6:23 And so whether we plod through this life in a hedonistic abandon, practicing every possible wickedness that we can, or we abstain from all and cast judgment upon the hedonists, we will stand before God for judgment one day. And the same wickedness that is resident in their heart, but apparent in their actions, is resident in our heart, even if it's not seen in our actions, and it will be judged by God. As Paul says in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows that he will also reap. Whether he sows to the flesh, he will reap corruption, but if he sows to the Spirit, he shall reap everlasting life. So Paul continues Romans 2, verse 7, To them who by patient continuance in doing well, doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath will come upon them, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace to every man that works good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. If we sow to the flesh, if we live after our carnal tendency, our default nature, we're going to reap corruption and judgment. But he says, if we sow to the spirit If we attach ourselves to God and plant into our lives the things of God, we will reap everlasting life. Those who walk in patient continuance of well-doing, says Paul, seek for God's glory and honor, they will reap immortal life, eternal life. Now the moralists will say, well, I am doing good, I'm not doing bad, like those bad people out there, I'm doing good. The problem is, is that it's the heart that is the issue. And so if you have not had a newly received heart through the new birth, then you're doing good works from the wicked heart. And all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before God when done from a wicked heart. And so every soul, Paul says, will experience this wrath. Verse 12, Romans chapter 2. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. So if you sin and you do not have God's law in your life, you don't know God's law, you still have your conscience, you're going to reap his judgment. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. If you have God's law and you continue to walk in lawlessness, you will be judged. Verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are justified before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not God's law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law. Unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. So even if you don't know the Ten Commandments, even if you've never read the Bible, you have the implanted conscience that God has given to you, and you know that what you're doing or what you're saying you ought not to do or you ought not to say. And when you go against that, you have transgressed. And even though you don't know the Bible, even though you don't have the Ten Commandments, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. And so we're without excuse. The hedonist, the moralist. The Jew, the Gentile, because why God is not a respecter of persons. And verse 16, Romans chapter 2, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to the gospel. It's not about the actions. The actions are just proof of the secret inward heart problem. Well, those hedonists, they're done for, right? The moralists they're toast. But I've kept the law. I have Abraham as my father. I've descended of a royal line. Therefore, I will be justified. Really? Well, we'll address that next week. Now this will seem, because it is, completely out of place. Turning from what we've just seen in the scriptures to what I'm going to share with you or address right now uh, doesn't seem to fit, and it doesn't. It's just out of place. But we are here at Cross Connection, a part of the Calvary Chapel movement of churches. We are a pastor-led but elder-governed church. And as a result, I'd like to share with you some of the decisions that myself with our elders have made recently. And so I'd like actually for our elders to come up and stand here. Not all of them are here at the moment, but most of them are. And I want to share just some things as we close today. This is kind of like family business, if you will, for our church. Five years ago, we began here at CCSCO what is typically a a a once-in-a-generation transition. And it doesn't happen often, And it doesn't always go well, to be honest with you. Thankfully, we have been really blessed in it. Pastor Pat Kinney, who was the former pastor of the church, he handed this church to me in April of 2008. And it's been very fruitful. It's been a a great transition. Now, when we began the discussions of that in in the end of the year in 2007, we knew when we did that there would be some changes as a result of that leadership change, staff changes. Shortly after I I took over as the pastor here at the church, we brought Pastor Josh Olson on as an associate pastor here at the church, and we basically changed all the titles of our pastoral staff that everyone was associate pastors. So Pastor Eric, Pastor Mark, Pastor Richard, Roberto. Now, Pastor Richard, he has a very specific area of focus with administration, administration, and Pastor Roberto, he oversees the Spanish ministry, so they retain kind of a title, the administrative pastor and the Spanish pastor. But everyone took on that title, associate pastor. Now, in continuing to further the vision of our church, a, few, a couple of years ago, we hired uh, Sonia Searle as our children's ministry director. And we recognized that we need to develop our children's ministry, and so she came on to serve with that, and she's done a great job. And then Uh, Just this last March, our board of elders, which are more than these three guys up here, there's a few other guys, but uh, we had a meeting and we determined that we were going to bring Pastor uh, Jason Brower on as our youth pastor. He'll be starting full-time in January. And at the same time, uh, Pastor Jeff Jackson, who has returned from pastoring in Phoenix, he's living in the area, he's dedicating a portion of his time here with the ministry he oversees, Shepherd Staff, to be our outreach pastor. He's not being paid for that, but he's just serving in that capacity. Well, as we look forward to 2013 and beyond, um, we have a a, few addi- or a couple additional moves that we're going to be making. And so for the last several years, Pastor Richard and myself have been discussing some of the future opportunities that he's been given in ministry. About seven years ago, he started a ministry called Calvary Admin Services. And what he's been doing is offering administrative support to other Calvary chapels in the larger Calvary Chapel movement, helping them establish their books, helping them establish their bylaws, all the stuff that people just don't like to think about, but Richard does really well. He's uniquely gifted to handle those sort of things. Now, as a result of his duties here at the church, he, he wasn't able to give much time to that. And we recognize that we need someone like Richard on our staff, and so we weren't able to release him to that. But in the last several months, we've identified a person who we believe that could fit that role. We'll be sharing with you who that is in a little bit. But as a result, we recognize that it leaves us with the opportunity to release Richard to develop Calvary Admin Services, and we want to see that ministry become a ministry that helps the larger Calvary Chapel movement and the body of Christ. And so we're committed to seeing that develop. But in 2013, we're going to be releasing Pastor Richard to pursue that and to develop Calvary Admin services. Also, in the last several years, it's become clear that the role and functions of an assistant pastor have been taken up by Pastor Josh. He's the one who really assists me in a lot of the areas of ministry here at the church. And so... As a result, myself with the board of elders, as we evaluated our vision and our direction and our resources in the coming year, um, we've determined to make a change within our staff that affects Pastor Mark as well. Pastor Mark, he has served the Lord faithfully here at Cross Connection for a long time, and, and during most of that time, he functioned as Pastor Pat's assistant pastor. And he developed some other areas of ministry, the the seniors ministry, the convalescent ministry, two ministries that we want to see continue and and to grow and expand. But as we look at our resources and as we consider the various things happening here at the church, we recognize that as Josh takes on the role as the assistant pastor, those areas of seniors and convalescent ministry, they they don't necessarily need a full-time staff pastor position. So in next year, we're going to be releasing Pastor Mark also to pursue other opportunities in ministry, independent of cross connection as they present themselves, we, we just trust you know he 's very gifted, God has some great things ahead for him, uh, some things that he 's already interested in and praying about, so we 're going to be releasing him to that now these changes I, I just want you to know that this has been kind of a, a well, it 's been a very difficult time as myself with the elders as we prayed about this as we've discussed this uh, these guys have both served the church greatly and they're going to continue to serve the kingdom of God uh, they've been involved in my discipleship raising me up in ministry I wouldn't be in ministry today if it wasn't for the leadership that's a part of this church and so we, we want to make sure that we help them transition into the next steps of ministry. So when their termination date comes, which is coming in the new year, we're going to be giving them a six-month severance package. We'll be paying for their medical through the, the whole year next year to help them launch out and establish new ministry. And I realize this is like so far away from the book of Romans, it's like a shock, like a cold bucket of water poured out. And so I recognize that for some of you, it's a greater shock than others. And so what we wanted to do as we close today, as we dismiss, is just make ourselves available, myself, our elders, to talk with you. If you have any questions, we'd love to talk with you. But we're convinced that the Lord has great plans for us as a church in 2013, and we're looking to Him for direction. Ultimately, He's the leader of our church, and so we trust Him. as He's the senior pastor, ultimately. And so we look to him for all of those things, and we just really ask that you would continue to pray for us and pray with us for the great things that God has for us in the new year. So would you stand with me? Let's pray for that specifically. Father, I thank you for the fact that you are the one who leads us. And so, Lord, your word says that the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. So we want to be following you. We thank you that we're not functioning in our own power, our own righteousness, but we've been clothed in your righteousness, and you direct us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would direct us as a body, that you would direct us to see great ministry produced from this fellowship. Continue to pray for Pastor Mark and Pastor Richard, because we know that your calling upon them, the gifts and callings of you are irrevocable, and you have great plans. So we look forward to the things you're going to do. Direct us, we pray, into that, we ask in Jesus' name.